Welcome to the Inquisitive VC. Today I'm speaking to John Henderson. John is a partner at Airtree Ventures, an Australia and NZ-focused venture firm. Prior to Airtree, John was the founding principal of White Star Capital. We talk about his journey to VC, investment biases, Olympus Finance, NFTs, and much more. I hope you enjoy this episode. I would love to start with your journey um, to venture capital. I know you did startups. I know you worked in a startup, so it'll be too great to hear that that story. Yeah, yeah, sure. I actually, um, I mean, I started out in management consulting where I learned to make slides and, and pretty Excel files. But I think the beginning of my startup journey was working for a 16 year old um, called Nick D'Aloisio with a machine learning company called Sumly. We, um, we had some NLP technology which could take long articles and reduce them down into very short paragraphs back when that was a, an unsolved problem in 2012 and 2013. And the, the vision of Sumly was really to take the news in long form and bring it down to an iPhone screen. Um, this is when there's really an open question about how content would be consumed on phones. It was before the responsive web necessarily and you know our vision for that was you would just summarize everything and we started out with the news that was a pretty incredible journey um we ended up getting acquired by yahoo in 2013 for 30 million dollars which sounds like nothing today but back in 2013 was a decent acquisition um and i got into venture capital straight after that actually with my old boss at, at facebook um i'd been at facebook prior to sumley and Christian, who was my boss there and the head of Europe for Facebook, um, had left after the IPO and was going into venture along with, frankly, a lot of his uh, ex-Facebook colleagues doing similar things for, for different funds. And so I hooked up with him and uh, I guess I was a founding principal at a firm called White Star Capital, which has now raised three funds, the last of which was $350 million and they seem to be doing pretty well. So yeah, I got my start at, at White Star and, uh, and spent whatever it was, four years uh, doing seed and Series A investing in, in London and New York. That's amazing. And then how was that journey back to, to Australia and joining Airtree? Uh, it, was, it was kind of natural for me. I, I, I was in London at the time, but kind of knew that I wanted to raise my kids in Sydney and, and come back here at some point. <clears throat> and venture is one of those businesses where it's still in large part a network business. And so the, I guess the longer I spent offshore, um, the longer I was you know, growing and perpetuating my networks there, but um, arguably making it more difficult for myself to come back into a senior role. So when the Airtree team was raising their second fund uh, and recruiting, um, we're recruiting partners to, to come and join Daniel and Craig, it felt like far too good an opportunity to, to give up. So. I uh, moved back with my family and haven't looked back since. I've been at Airtree since 2016 and, you know, I work with, gosh, it must be a dozen of our companies from Employment Hero to Linktree uh, all the way down to some of our, our smaller but promising ones like Inquisitive and Joyous. And so um, it's been a great journey. Yeah, no, that's great to hear. And with that, you know, you worked four years in, in VC in UK and then I think just over four years now in, in Australia. How has you know, how, how different are the founders that, that you've met and the startups compared to, to UK? 
Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. So I was I was in between the UK and New York, um, and I think the the comparison between British founders and New York and you know East Coast American and and therefore West Coast American founders kind of holds true for Australian founders as well. I would say I would say Australian and Kiwi founders bear a lot of similarities with their British counterparts, which is that they tend to be understated for what they have done. Um, they tend to be much more matter of fact, far less capable of selling a colossal vision um, and, and maybe on balance a little bit less charismatic. I know that sounds brutal, but I think if I'm to massively generalize, Americans are just better at selling the dream. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, the other side of that knife is that they're slightly more prone to exaggeration on what they've actually achieved so far. So. I would say for a like-for-like -like business, a Australian or a Kiwi or a British pitch for that matter is uh, materially worse than a US pitch. And I think that's partly reflected or partly reflective of the amount of capital that, uh, that US founders can raise. Right, do you think that's like changing? So in your four years in Australia, have you seen that change? I think, I think founders from this region now have credible examples of globally relevant and globally iconic companies that they can look up to and model themselves on. So when I moved back, Atlassian was the um, was the watershed moment, I suppose. It, you know, it's it's now I think in the top five biggest Australian companies of all time. It's more than 100 billion 100 billion in market cap. Similarly, in our portfolio, we led the Series A in Canva. That's now a $40 billion US private company. I think it's in the top handful of private companies globally. Um, and so I think the existence of companies like that has made Australian and Kiwi founders realise that building iconic companies from this part of the world is realistic rather than just a pipe dream. And so I think they've got, uh, yeah, again, I'm generalising, but if I look at someone like Alex pitching Linktree um, it's a much more audacious pitch than perhaps I would have heard from an equivalent SaaS company in 2016. But that being said, I still think on balance, we have a ways to go. I, I still, I mean, obviously in this role, I still speak to a lot of Americans and we have US companies in our portfolio. And again, just pitching the identical business, Americans are a lot more uh, convincing and I guess, um, salesman-like in their, in their pitch. And, uh, and there's something to that because pitching to an investor, you know, I think a lot of people turn their noses up at this notion of pitching to an investor. And certainly in 2021, it's, it's often the other way around. But I do think we look for the ability to sell a vision, not necessarily because we need it to invest in your company, but certainly I think your customers need it to buy your product and your employees definitely need it to kind of come on an improbable journey with you. Most of the companies I work with are trying to recruit people from places like Google or Atlassian um, or any of these software companies. And if you're going to leave a high paying soft, safe software engineering job at a company like that, you really need to believe in the future that a founder is painting in front of you. And so the, the ability to evangelize a mission, I think is as important as it ever was. Yeah, no doubt. I find that super interesting, the differences between the the two types of founders. 
You've probably been looking at pitch decks for a while now. How has your ability to analyze these pitch decks over time changed, if if any? And what tips would you be able to give to like a new VC or angel? I don't know if I have any great tips, if I'm honest with you, Nawaz. I think one thing, one thing that we focus a lot on at Airtree is the removal of cognitive bias. And I think the longer you've been an investor, the more biases you bring um, to the investment table and to the to your analyses of, of pitch decks. And so we talk at Airtree, we've got we've now got five investing partners at Airtree, and they sort of span three generations. Um, Craig, who was one of the two co-founders of the firm, uh, ran a or worked with a venture firm prior to Airtree and had, you know, has worked through a couple of economic cycles. Um, James and I both returned from offshore to join Airtree in 2016. And then Jackie and Alicia made partner with us in 2021. Um, and we deliberately, when we hear a founder pitch as a group or when we look at a deck together, we deliberately have systems and processes in place. For example, we write down our reactions to the pitch before discussing it and we score it before discussing it um, to try and remove some of the historical biases that we'll bring because we've looked at sectors and they haven't worked in the past, for example, and therefore we don't think they'll work today. And that has been a really effective tool in, um, in frankly, removing some of the sort of pattern matching that, that people talk about and think is a good thing. I actually think is a terrible thing. Most, most ideas in software will work. It's just a question of timing. And so, you know, the perspective that Jackson and Alicia bring with a different age bracket and a different set of experiences, um, often leads us to make better investment decisions. So circling back to your question, do I have any advice for kind of aspiring VCs? Uh, not really, other than to try and be aware of your biases and keep an open and curious mind. And I think the longer you've been in venture, the less likely you are to do that. Okay, no, I, I think that's a great point. Um, I like to circle to, to crypto. I know you've been around and known of crypto for a while. How did you, I guess, first get into it and then where are you now in, in that phase of exploring crypto? Yeah, I got into crypto in 20, early 2013. Um, I was in the angel investment round of Coindesk, which was, I guess, the OG crypto news site. Uh, one of my mentors in London actually founded that, a guy called Shaquille Khan, and I became an advisor to the CEO of that company for a few years in its early days which was a really interesting first exposure. Obviously, you know, I got into Bitcoin at the same time, but um, by being really close to Coindesk, I was therefore really close to most of the OG Bitcoin entrepreneurs who were looking for coverage. Um, so it was, a, it was an interesting insertion point. And I spent a lot of time at my previous venture fund uh, in and around the Bitcoin ecosystem, looking at building smart contracts on Bitcoin, looking at colored coins on Bitcoin, all kinds of ideas that now seem very passe, but in sort of 2013, 14, 15 were, were kind of cutting edge. Through that um, community, I met Vitalik Buterin in 2014 and, you know, was lucky enough to be involved in the, the first days of Ethereum and the pre-sale and all that kind of stuff. And so I've been on the smart contract journey um, for quite a while. I, in, in 2017 and 18, I, I kind of stepped away a little bit from the crypto ecosystem. Uh, and that was obviously, as you know, during the phase where there was a whole bunch of ICOs and not much else. Um, and if you'd been in the sector for four years, which I had at that point, really felt like we were still in the installation phase for blockchain. There was no use case that was working other than maybe digital gold. 
um, many of the sort of apps and concepts in DeFi and things around provenance um, were tried back then and failed. And so I, I became kind of jaded and moved on to Web2, to be honest, and went and did a bunch of SaaS investments and other, other, other things that Airtree's done. Um, and it was, it was only in sort of early to mid 2020 that I really got back into crypto in a, in a meaningful way when one of my friends pinged me on Telegram and told me to look at DeFi Pulse. Um, and all of a sudden, some of these early protocols were, you know, like Maker and, and others um, were starting to attract material TBL. And that, that was interesting to me, A, because finally we were getting some use cases beyond digital gold, but B, it seemed to me that that was... Those, those DeFi use cases were onboarding um, a whole bunch of actual users into crypto. Um, so I started paying attention to that. Airtree started making investments in crypto in late 2020 um, because I guess my view was that we were finally through the installation phase and at the beginning of the uh, deployment phase. And that's sort of how we think about new technologies. We try and, we try and figure out when a technology is going to hit an inflection point within the sort of 18 to 18 month to three year uh, runway that we fund them for. So we started investing in, in late 2020. Obviously, um, JPEG summer kind of only served to reinforce my conviction that we were getting real consumer usage and something was different in crypto this time. And so we've been investing fairly aggressively against, um, against the picks and shovels of both DeFi and, and NFTs. And what, what areas of crypto are you most excited by now? We've, we've taken a fairly broad view, to be honest. I mean, some of our investments are unannounced, but I'll give you some examples of, of ones that we, we have put out publicly. Um, Immutable is, is a good example. Uh, as you would know, that's a layer two scaling solution for Ethereum-based NFTs. Um, so that felt like picks and shovels to us. It had a gaming component, and I think I'm a big believer in play-to-earn gaming in crypto. Um, plus, it was a scalability tool for other gaming platforms to come into crypto. So there was a lot of um, there was a lot of macro trends in its favor. I was a big fan of James and Robbie, uh, and and they're actually based in Sydney. So there was a whole bunch of reasons that that made sense for us. Uh, that's an equity investment into a company. Um, so that's kind of on one end of the spectrum. Right through to uh, we've invested in Zeta Markets, which is a decentralized options exchange built on Solana, and that's a token investment. Um, so you know that's a investment in a new primitive on a different blockchain. And you know I guess my view is that the performance of Solana means that it is the best suited to um, to an order book, which is a sort of prerequisite for you know options trading at speed. So, so we've done all kinds of things in between, most of them in DeFi, but that probably gives you a sense of our range um, from a token investment in you know, a Solana app right through to an Ethereum scaling solution for games. I, I understand that both of us are OMIs. Um, how did you wrap your head around what Olympus Finance is doing? Well, so this to be clear, this is a PA investment rather than an Airtree investment. Um, I... I think it was this concept of protocol-owned liquidity that got me excited about Olympus. I um, I invested in Ohm on a PA basis in June, I suppose. So I wasn't I wasn't quite early enough to be in the in the IDO, but um, but one of my friends was, and he started telling me about this kind of concept of bonding rather than um, just buying on the open market and staking. 
And I thought, I thought the idea of protocol and liquidity was really interesting because clearly um, liquidity incentives are, you know, they're an interesting bootstrapping mechanism for DeFi, but, but long-term you've got to question their sustainability. And I'm not sure how many, how many kind of apes are really thinking about that. And, and I think you're seeing that today in the outperformance of DeFi by ETH. Um, in, the, in the early days of DeFi summer, everybody got excited about the incentives and, and started farming them, but the performance of the underlying tokens would suggest that, that that's not a sustainable model. And so I think I kind of knew that I was trying to figure out what the answer was. As with everybody, when I saw Olympus, you know, the APYs were enough for me to go to you know, have another look or have a second look. And then when I sort of read up, read about the bonding mechanism and, and this notion of protocol and liquidity, I, um, I got conviction to invest. And I think the release of Olympus Pro and the extension of this to other DeFi protocols is, is very, very powerful. And, you know, I think makes, I think it makes Olympus kind of a black hole for, for DeFi liquidity, which if you want a, if you want a, currency that is DeFi native is not pegged to stable coins it feels like a pretty good way to set one up yeah no doubt and what about the i guess forks uh like climate do you have any thoughts on those yeah i well so i'm very very bullish on climate actually so for your audience um climate takes the same uh product same token mechanism as Olympus, but instead of backing the tokens one for one with DAI, it backs them with BCTs, base carbon tons, um, which are essentially a, a carbon credit. Um, and I think, and the idea is that if you can suck as many carbon credits into the protocol as possible, then you raise the price of um, of carbon, and therefore you do your bit to to contributing to uh, mitigating climate change. Um, I, I just think the mechanism itself Olympus is showing is working really well. And if you're looking for an underlying asset with which to back your tokens, then I think carbon credits being naturally inflationary uh, are a really interesting asset. So I'm, um, I may be even more bullish on, uh, on climate than I am on, on OM, to be honest. That's, yeah, that's pretty interesting to hear. I, I think it's a great idea that the fact that you create like a on-chain sync for carbon credits, it's, it's a great idea, but it will be interesting to see how it actually plays out. What about you, Nawaz? What about, uh, are you looking at or invested in any of the other forks? No, only climate and Ohm uh, for me. The other ones, I, I looked at time for a bit, um, but didn't really, really get into that one. Did you? I, I'm interested in time mainly because I think it's hard to bet against um, Daniel Siesta. He's he's doing incredible things in DeFi. The thing that I'm waiting to see with time, he, he keeps making references to some kind of gaming use case for the token, but I don't exactly know what that means. So I'm I'm waiting for that to be to be laid out. But I'm I'm certainly interested in it. Um, and I guess circling back to how you perfectly described JPEG Summer. Um, you have a smiley punk and a few nice art block pieces. How do you go about finding and deciding what NFTs to, to purchase? Oh, well, yeah, the, um, I was very lucky to get into punks reasonably early. Um, and I, it, my first JPEG purchase was a punk uh, in, I think, February of this year. 
and then I cycled through a few to get to to get to the one I wanted. Um, so I've actually gone down in rarity in punks, but um, but I've got one that I feel like I feel like it hits my vibe. And fortunately, I was in early enough that the profits from the previous ones paid for that one. So, so, so I've been very lucky there. Um, more broadly, look, I think, and it was actually Snow Furry that got me into punks, to be honest. So that's sort of why I got into Art Blocks as well, because I think he's one of the luminaries of our time. And the, the JPEG that I own the largest number of is Squiggles, because I'm a huge fan of, of Snow Furry and what he's done, both in the punk community and at Art Block. Um, Beyond that, I think, what do I look for? I, I look for something with a story or some kind of technological uh, novelty in it. And so if I could afford one, I'd buy an autoglyph in a heartbeat because I think the first you know, generative project fully on chain on Ethereum is, is incredible. And you know that would be the grail NFT one day. Um, I bought punks for the same reason because you know they were... They were the original and the community around them was was astounding uh, and i and layer onto the fact that by having one you get access to not just the punks discord but a whole bunch of other communities where you instantly have um firstly access but then secondly social credibility which is weird just because you own a picture um that has been that access into that group has been amazing for me i've made a whole bunch of crypto investments, both NFT and DeFi um, through connections in the punk community. So I think I look for some kind of technological novelty, some kind of community that's interesting for some reason. Um, and then something that I'm sort of proud to put in my socials or, or sort of associate with myself with. And for me, that's that's led me down the path of a few artists. It's led me down the punks path and, and art blocks and it will keep, will keep taking me different places, I imagine. So would you say your your dream NFT that you don't have yet is an autoglyph or something else? Oh, 100 percent Yeah. I would I would trade the whole collection for an autoglyph. Nice. What would you say is your favorite one from, from your collection now? Uh so the squiggles are my favorites because okay. they they mean a lot more to me than you know the art itself. I they they I see them as one of Snowfro's signatures and and they've kind of got um, hidden surprises with them. I don't know how many people know that squiggles, if you, they're actually a GIF. Like if you click on them, they, the colors move around, which I didn't realize when I bought them and then I kind of discovered later. So I, I like them a lot. I also, um, I've also got a singularity by uh, Hideki, who, Japanese surname that I'm going to blank on, uh, basically because I think they're beautiful. Um, so those are probably my favorites from the Artbox collections. Did you get his, uh, his latest drop? Thing, the fusion. I got, I got a cipher, which is the one before his latest drop, and then I missed his latest one. Great. Um, I guess circling back to to venture a bit, uh, and finally, what is the latest publicly announced investment you made, and why'd you make it? Uh, I think the latest one I announced was probably Immutable, which we've just talked about. Um, the one before that was also in fintech, but in Web two fintech, a business called Frankie One. Uh, and they are doing, they're doing an aggregator for AML and KYC um, checks and processes. So the, if you're Westpac or a large financial institution, you have to do um, hundreds of thousands of KYC checks a year. And you probably have some service agreement with someone like Experian or Equifax. Um, the problem with that is 
Equifax doesn't actually do the best checks for everybody in the population. There's a whole bunch of their competitors that, you know, some of them will do I don't know, immigrants better and some of them will do old people better and some of them will do teenagers better um, just because their data sets uh, come from different places and they specialize in different things. So what Pranky does is it essentially aggregates all of those service providers and provides a single API into Westpac, which basically gives you the best coverage of all the possible AML, KYC um, checks. And the interesting thing for Westpac is they only have to deal with one service provider and their, and their um, pass rates on the tests becomes higher. And so in Westpac's business, they spend a whole bunch of advertising and marketing dollars acquiring people into their funnel and losing them through KYC is a disaster for them. So if they can increase their conversion rates, it's a, it's a big impact um, from the bottom line perspective. So, so Frankie One is, is solving that problem uh, across the world. Oh, really interesting. It's, it's great how you're able to move between Web 2 and, and Web 3. But that's that's all the questions I had, John. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate hearing you know, your thoughts across the spectrum. My pleasure, Nawaz. Thanks for having me.